All right, did anybody bring a friend to church today? I brought some friends to church today. If you're my friend, would you stand up for me? Have I ever told you where I went to college? You guys can have a seat. Um, So when I was at CU and attended Calvary throughout college, I was also a part, I've told you about this, of the Christian fraternity on campus, Alpha Gamma Omega. And uh, AGO, as we call it, celebrated its 25th anniversary of being on campus at CU this weekend. And so we had tons of people come in from out of state, and uh, we had a big celebration last night at Folsom Field. And uh, it was a joy to just be together with our brothers and to celebrate what God has done through that ministry in the lives of hundreds of young CU students over the last 25 years. Um, I would just say, if you're a student at CU, AGO and this church together were the most important spiritual experience of my life to put me on a track to following Jesus. And without my brothers that uh, I was active with at the time and brothers that I have gotten to know, I don't know where I would be in my walk with Christ. They were absolutely instrumental. And I am grateful for the ministry of so many of them in my life. And it was a joy to be able to celebrate together. And so we all decided we would come to church today, which is awesome. So I challenge each of you to bring more friends to church next Sunday than I did today. And we'll see who wins. There will be a series of fabulous prizes. And we're grateful that a number of the actives are regularly here at Calvary. And uh, if you're a woman at CU, there also is a Christian sorority called Alpha Delta Chi that similarly has had a transformative work in the lives of many young women at CU. We're grateful for the work that God does on the campus and so thankful that there are so many CU students who are here with us every week. We're continuing in our series called Good News for All People as we are journeying through the gospel of Luke. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. If you were here with us last week, uh, I want to say a special thanks to Mark Luby, who sort of pinch hit for Perry Marshall, who was under the weather and at the last minute was not able to preach from Luke chapter 12. So you got two weeks in a row of Luke chapter 11, which I know is a blessing to you. And if you're coming today hoping that we're going to open Luke chapter 12, I have bad news for you. We'll be in Luke chapter 13. But I also have good news for you. And that is that we have other competent pastors at our other campuses who preached from Luke chapter 12 last week. And you can head to calvarybible.com and listen to those messages and get caught up in everything that happened in Luke chapter 12. But we will be in chapter 13 today. The setting that we're going to look at in today's text happens in a room not unlike this room. A room where people have come to worship God, to hear from His Word. And the episode that we're going to investigate together is one that is unique in Luke's historical account. It's not accounted for in Matthew, Mark, or John. Just the Gospel of Luke. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people come into a room like this one. Perhaps they were invited by a friend. There was a survey a number of years ago that tried to determine the top 10 reasons why people come to church. And it might not surprise you to find out that the number one reason why people indicated that they attend church is because they would like to grow closer to God. That's a good reason. There were others, though. 
One indicated that um, perhaps one motivating reason why people might attend church is because they'd like to be entertained. My apologies in advance. We just saw an example of one of the reasons why people come to church is to raise up their children in a similar faith experience that they had when they were a child. Another reason people often come to church is for the community, to gather with their friends, to be comforted. One of the top 10 reasons why people come to church, according to this survey, was to continue my family's religious traditions. And the reality is that those different motivators for why people come to a room like this can actually create tension or conflict. You ever heard of a church having disagreements about what might happen in their worship services? Yeah, it it happens. And there is a similar kind of conflict that arose in the text we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bible, open it with me to Luke chapter 13 and verse 10. Luke chapter 13 and verse 10. This episode happens in a synagogue, the place where Jews would gather to hear teaching from the Hebrew Bible, which we now call our Old Testament. And it happened on the Sabbath, the day that God had set aside for his people to worship him and to experience rest. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Now he, that's Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It's our privilege to turn to it today. And we pray you would speak to us through it. Pray God for any heart that needs to be reminded of your love and care and compassion. That they would experience that today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, your spirit would be at work amongst us. That we might hear from you. That we might be convicted by you. That we might be comforted by you. And that we too might rejoice at all of the glorious things you have done. We pray in your name. 
Amen. It's kind of stunning to think that tension or conflict could occur because Jesus healed someone who had been disabled for 18 years. What's going on? Why, why on earth would that happen? Jesus is going about his ministry of healing and teaching and performing miracles for this purpose, to prove that the kingdom of God has come to the earth. And when the kingdom comes, transformation happens. That's what happens in the life of this woman whom Jesus heals. The transforming power of the kingdom comes to her, and her life is changed. She is physically healed. Now, why would that cause, cause conflict? Wouldn't, wouldn't everybody want that to occur? There are forces at work here that oppose the kingdom. But I think the forces we're going to see in our text today are more subtle than we might expect. I think the conflict that's at play here in this text is one between the power of kingdom transformation that Jesus brings to this woman and then the preference for religious tradition. When those come in conflict with each other, if we prefer our own religious rules and regulations and traditions over the power of the kingdom, we are blinded to the transforming work of what God wants to do. And I think that's the tension, the conflict that is happening here. Jesus tended to get himself into trouble on the Sabbath. Have you noticed that? whether it was the things that he was teaching or the things that he was doing or even the things that his disciples would do on the Sabbath, the conduct of Jesus on the Sabbath was one of the main attacks that the religious leaders of the day brought against him. And it all came down to this. Jesus was all about the power of kingdom transformation, and they were steeped in their preference for religious tradition. And his actions would tick off the religious leaders of his day. Look at what it says about the religious ruler in the synagogue that day in verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He's furious, angry that Jesus would perform this kind of miracle and do this kind of work. Notice he doesn't deny that the, the healing happened. He's ticked off because Jesus would have the boldness to do something like that on the Sabbath. Now, why does that matter? The Sabbath was the day that God had set apart for his people to worship him and to experience rest. He had instituted it because, as you know, God created the earth. And the Bible tells us that after he created the earth, God rested himself, and he wanted his people to experience one day a week set aside for his purposes, for worship, for rest, for communion with him. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day were so concerned that people not violate God's holy command to keep the Sabbath day holy and set apart from all other days that they built a series of rules and regulations around it 
which were not what God had communicated. God had simply said, keep this day holy. The religious leaders said, well, we got to make sure that no one violates that. So let's build a fence, if you will, around that command so that people can't even get close to a possible violation of God's law. And so there were all these rules, many of them, that dictated what you could and could not do and what would be appropriate and inappropriate on the Sabbath day. And this caused a stumbling block for many people. And these folks were so steeped in their religious traditions that when they saw someone who they thought was violating these rules and regulations, they were indignant that they would experience the transforming work of God on this day. Now, it's super easy when we read the Bible to throw shade at the religious leaders of the day. Like we look at the Pharisees and these rulers and think these guys were evil enemies opposed to Jesus. And when we see the way that the gospel unfolds and what happens and that they were the primary conspiracy people who sent Jesus to the cross, we, we view them from that lens. But in the first century, these guys were respected. They were admired in their community. No one would have looked at them and thought they were evil, that they were villainous. These were the kinds of people you wanted your kids to grow up to be like. The leaders of the community, the spiritual ones, the ones who were closest to God. So I think there's a warning for us as we read this, that we not fall prey to what they did and not allow our preference for our own personal religious tradition and practice to blind us to the power of kingdom transformation. Because the truth is, religious tradition can be problematic for us too. Like if we allow our own personal preferences to dictate what happens when we gather for worship, that that can cause problems. Like the question we want to ask ourselves after church on Sunday is not so much, did you like the service? The question we want to ask ourselves is, was, was God pleased with what happened here when we gathered? Was he glorified? Was his word spoken? Did we allow all the room possible in this place for his transforming work to come to people? That's what we pray happens when we gather together in this place. And sometimes traditions get in the way of that. I read a story this week from... This incident happened many, many years ago. There was a traveling pastor who would come and minister at different congregations, and a rural church had asked him to come and preach one Sunday. He traveled a great distance to go there, and when he arrived, one of the elders of the church examined his outfit and noticed that this young pastor was wearing suspenders, but not also a belt. They conferred with the other elders there and some of the members of the congregation, and they decided that should his suspenders fail and he not have the backup of a belt and his trousers would fall off in the middle of the sermon, that would create a scandal. And so they decided it would be best if he just not preached that morning. Now, I have no idea if that story is true or not. But you could kind of imagine how it might be. 
Like sometimes we just want to create policies and procedures and rules and regulations that help us conform to what we think we ought to do and what would be pleasing to God. But what God wants us to experience more than tradition is that we would be continually transformed into the likeness of His Son, Jesus. That's what He calls us to. One theologian said, a person can love religion like anything else in life. Sports, science, stamp collecting. One can love it for its own sake without relation to God or the world or life. Preference for religious tradition can blind us to the power of kingdom transformation. And Jesus had little patience for religious traditions standing in the way of the work he was about, that the kingdom of God would come near to people. Look at his answer to the religious leader in verse 15. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. All of these rules and regulations they had about the Sabbath, they included ways for them to take care of their animals and livestock. And Jesus makes this kind of brutal argument, arguing from a lesser to greater perspective, that if your tradition, if your rules allow you to take care of the needs of an animal, how could you not care for the needs of a human being? He says, you're allowed to untie your donkey, so too should this woman be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. That's the same word in the Greek. This woman should be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Notice that Jesus doesn't simply see her need as only a physical one, although it is. He sees a deeper spiritual force at work here. He attributes her condition directly to Satan. He says Satan has bound her for 18 years. Now, not all disease or disability is caused by Satan, but some is. This one was, and it's a reminder for us of what Satan's ultimate purpose is. He is a deceiver. Satan is a liar. He is a thief who wants to rob humanity of its dignity. And even though many of his tactics seem like freedom to us, what they ultimately end in is bondage. But the message Satan wants us to believe is that you'll experience freedom. You know, sleep with whomever you want. If it feels good, do it. That's true freedom. That's the lie that he wants us to believe. And the reality is that when we buy in to the lies that Satan tells, we become dehumanized. That's his ultimate purpose. Is that Satan's work is to dehumanize people. And that's what he's done to this woman in particular. 
We don't know exactly what her condition is, but remember, Luke, the author of this, was a medical doctor. And the language that he uses has caused many scholars to believe that she had a very specific physical ailment condition where the bones of her spine were fused together, physically joined in such a way that she was hunched over, unable to lift her neck to look up, and it would cause her to shuffle around. The text says she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So here we see this picture of the dehumanizing power of Satan that has bound this woman for nearly 20 years. And then the transforming power of the kingdom comes to her. And what happens? Immediately, she is healed. This is the kingdom of God at work in the life of this person, winning the battle against the oppressive power of Satan. This is what Paul says in the first chapter of Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transformed us, if you will, to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the work of the kingdom. And it's, it is greater than simply a physical work. There is a deep spiritual component to what Jesus is aiming to accomplish as he ministers kingdom power in the lives of people. To literally transform people from the kingdom of darkness, bound by Satan, and transfer them or transform them into his own kingdom. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we are brought into eternal life because of his transforming work. Now, Jesus regularly spoke in synagogues on the Sabbath. And this episode we're looking at in chapter 13 is the last time that Luke records for us Jesus teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. I wonder if you remember the first time he did it in Luke's gospel. It's what's known as Jesus' inaugural address in Luke chapter 4. It says in chapter 4 and verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And in this case, back in chapter 13, we see how the power of kingdom transformation comes specifically to the life of this woman. In verse 12, it says, When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from this disability. There's something that's very interesting about this healing miracle of Jesus. Many of the miracles we've looked at in our study in the Gospel of Luke and in the other Gospels as well, the person who has a need asks Jesus to help them. The woman doesn't ask Jesus anything. 
in many of the healing miracles, a friend or a family member comes to Jesus and pleads on behalf of their, of their son or their daughter or their servant that they have a physical need and could Jesus come and heal them? But who initiates this healing? Jesus. Jesus is the one who sees her and calls her over and says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Jesus is the one who initiates this healing. I love this about Jesus. I love that Jesus is the one who takes the first step as he initiates a relationship with us. Jesus is the one who left the comfort and the glory of heaven and came to earth to dwell among us so that he might restore our broken relationship with God by his work on the cross. Jesus is the initiator in spiritual things, my friends. And I love how Jesus steps forward to this woman and initiates this miracle. I want you to notice three things about the character of Jesus from verse 12. There's three verbs here. I circled all of them in my Bible. He saw her, he called her, and he spoke to her. First, Jesus sees this woman. Jesus saw this woman like no one had ever seen this woman. Remember the way that Luke describes her? Bent over so that she could not straighten herself for 18 years. She probably would have shuffled her way into the synagogue. Perhaps sat alone. Overlooked. Ignored. Maybe even more than that, because in the first century, disability was often seen as sort of divine retribution for people who had committed a grave sin. And so you imagine the whispers that might occur when this woman, hunched over, easy to point out, came into the synagogue on a Sabbath. Why is she here? What did she do? What sin did she commit? What did her parents do? She would have been overlooked, ignored, perhaps even outcast. But Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her like no one else had ever seen her. This woman who had been overlooked, outcast, and ignored. He sees this woman like no one else ever had. Did you notice in verse 16 that Jesus knew exactly how long she'd been disabled for? 18 years. The way that Jesus sees her is, is more than just seeing her with his eyes, but he knows this woman. He knows everything about her. He knows what it's been like for her to struggle deeply in the ways that she has for so long. She knows the feelings of rejection she's experienced. She knows the challenges she faces day to day. He knows. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Luke chapter 11, looking at the Lord's Prayer. 
Jake did such a great job leading us through that text. In Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus reminds his disciples that God knows what you need before you ask for it. And so when Jesus sees this woman, he sees her with all of the knowledge of God, deeply and intimately knowing her. She doesn't even have to ask him to heal her because he knows. My friends, if you're here today, I want you to know most of all that Jesus sees you. Jesus knows what burdens you're carrying. Jesus knows what struggles you're contending with. If you've been bearing the burden of a disability for decades, I want you to know that Jesus sees you. Whether you're disabled or depressed, Jesus sees you. If you're discouraged today or distressed, Jesus knows. And we can have confidence because he knows everything we need before we even ask that we can, we can ask. We can come to him and ask for his help, for his transforming work in our own personal life and circumstance. Now, Jesus does, doesn't just see this woman as a disabled person, but he sees this woman for who she truly is. Look at verse 16. He says, Ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham? This is the one and only time this phrase is used in the New Testament. And this phrase elevates this woman in a way that is remarkable. Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people, the one who had received the unconditional blessing and promise of God. God had said to him, Abraham, from your family, all families on the earth, all nations will be blessed because of your people, Abraham. And Abraham, you will have so many descendants, they will be so numerous that they will outnumber the stars in the sky. This is the defining blessing of the Hebrew, of the Hebrew people that was given to Abraham. And for Jesus to refer to this woman as a daughter of Abraham just takes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees to a whole nother level. Remember, they're probably viewing this woman from the perspective of their understanding in the first century that if you're disabled, you're probably a sinner. This language unquestionably puts this woman in the family of God. And I also want you to see how it just raises the dignity of women in general in the first century. It would have been kind of scandalous that Jesus was even speaking to a woman in the synagogue. And for him to have this beautiful relationship and this encounter with her elevates her. And it's a reminder for us of the equality that exists in the kingdom of God. Jesus did this all the time in his ministry. When he would bring healing miracles to Gentiles, non-Jews. It flew in the face of the Jewish leader's understanding of who the kingdom of God might be for. 
And in the kingdom, there's equality regardless of race or ethnicity or where you're from or what you look like or what your gender is. If you're male or female, there is equality in the kingdom of God. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus sees you, my friends. There are so many things, disabilities, discouragement, depression, sin, suffering, that we might think would exclude us from the kingdom. But Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He invites the downtrodden and the lowly to him. He calls to them and says, come to me. That's the second verb that I circled in verse 12, that Jesus called to her. He called her over. He asked her to to walk to him. That must have been quite a spectacle in the synagogue that day. As, As she slowly shuffles over to him. There's probably some awkward silence. People are wondering what Jesus is doing. Why is he even speaking to this woman? I don't know why he did it. Maybe just to remind everybody about the affliction that she had lived with. One final reminder before he demonstrates the liberating power of the kingdom. But he calls to her. This is the mission of Jesus, which he articulates probably most clearly in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus calls lost people to himself. That's his mission. He's calling to us today. And he might be calling to you. Perhaps to turn to him and experience the transforming work of God in your own life. To experience salvation that he brings by his power and by his work on the cross. Perhaps he's calling you today to turn back to him. You've drifted a little bit away from Jesus. And he's calling to you today through his word to say, come back to me. Perhaps he's reminding you that in the midst of your struggle, you can bring comfort and peace and care and loving kindness to you. And so he's calling you to him. That's the mission and ministry of Jesus. So Jesus sees her. Jesus calls to her. And finally, Jesus speaks to her. Back in verse 12. He said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. There is a word that Jesus speaks. He speaks to her. He says, you are freed from your disability. Now, as I said, I think there's more at work here than just a physical healing that Jesus is bringing. Jesus is illustrating for us the transforming power of the kingdom to save. And so he communicates to her by a word. You are freed from your disability. And that's it. She's healed. Jesus calls all of us who have experienced his work in our life to share a word with others too. 
about the work that he has done. Can you imagine the testimony this woman would have had? I mean, it would have been incredible and it would have been so visible because everyone would have known who she was. And then suddenly she can stand bolt upright and walk around freed. But can you imagine the story she could have told people? This is what my life was like before I met Jesus. And then he saw me and he called me over and he spoke to me and I was healed, freed. Now, all of us too, who have called on the name of Jesus for salvation, have a story to share. It it may not be as spectacular as the one that this woman experienced, but nonetheless, whenever the kingdom comes to a heart and transforms it, that is a story worth sharing so that we can pass on the power of the kingdom to others. It'd be easy for us to say, oh, we'll leave that work to Jesus. But he left that work to us. Jesus still sees us. Jesus reigns and rules in heaven today, and he knows exactly what's happening in each and every one of our lives. Jesus still calls to us. Jesus still speaks through his word. But he has called us into that ministry of reconciliation to take the word and the message of the gospel to places where it has not yet been proclaimed so that people would experience spiritual transformation through the work of Christ. And that's the beautiful ministry that he calls each of us into. To proclaim what Jesus has done. To share the gospel message with people. To share the testimony of what my life was like before I knew Jesus and what it's like after. Here's what Paul says in Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is necessary that the gospel be proclaimed in order for people to come to faith in Jesus. And he has called us in to that beautiful ministry. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Now back to Luke 13. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. You're free. I bring liberty to the captives. I have freed you from your affliction. And my friends, Jesus wants to free you from the greatest affliction that any of us ever face. It's one that we can't free ourselves from. It's the reality that we are separated from God because of our sin. And that's the ultimate kind of liberation that Jesus brings. Those who are captive to sin, captive to the power of Satan, Jesus comes and liberates us by his work on the cross. Dying the death that, and paying the penalty that none of us could pay. And he freely offers it to you. Here's what John 8 says. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the kind of freedom that is only found in the kingdom of God. We hear all sorts of language about freedom as Americans, and we're grateful for the freedom we experience. But the truest kind of freedom that can be experienced is only found in the kingdom of God through the transforming work of the Son of God, Jesus. He sees you. He may be calling to you today. And he's speaking to you through his word. 
Will you come to him today, if you haven't yet, and experience the power of kingdom transformation? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we affirm your power. We affirm the work of the kingdom to bring new life to people who are lost. And I pray, Jesus, for any heart that needs to be reminded of your love for them today, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would speak, that you would remind, that you would encourage, that you would help. And Jesus, for any heart that needs to surrender to you and be transformed, I pray for your glory you would accomplish it. For any person in this room who's praying for healing, God, I pray you would hear their prayers. We affirm today you have the power to heal. So we ask for it in the name of Jesus. For those who have not yet experienced your healing, God, I pray for your comfort and your peace to come by your power. I pray all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.